And you'll see that the Lord begins to speak about the church towards the end of that passage, if you're struggling to understand those verses, after he says to tell it to the church, when he speaks about binding things and loosing things, and then being bound and loosed in heaven, he's speaking about church government. That's really a presbytery or a session. Remember, he's speaking to apostles here. And then he says, if any two of you agree on earth on anything, it's not anything, anything that's in accordance with God's word, if they're doing the will of God, then they're doing that with the authority of God himself, with the authority of Christ. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, especially in church government, I am there in their midst. So Christ is telling the apostles that they will govern the church, but they will govern by him, and he will be in their midst. He gives them the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and they must oversee uh, the moral um, health of the church. So we'll come to that at some point, but I want to focus on uh, the beginning of that passage, really, in verse 15. Where he says, if your brother sins, and in the Greek it says, if he sins against you, go and reprove him in private. And if he listens to you, you have won your brother. You'll remember that um, this entire sermon of Christ, this uh, discourse, it came and arose out of a dispute that happened between the disciples. And we've seen that. They were arguing on the way about who would be the greatest. And Christ then gives this bulk of teaching here in this house in Capernaum in response to that. He'd already taught them his manifesto, which was the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5-7, to which is about how we are to morally live as private Christians, as, as believers before the law of God and the grace of Christ. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is. It's a description of the Christian life. He preaches this, or he teaches, really, he's teaching here. He teaches this because, as we have said, they weren't in a good spiritual condition, and they began to compete against each other, criticize each other, because some of them had been selected to go up the mountain. They're beginning to think about the kingdom coming, and they want positions in that kingdom. Judas certainly wants a position. And he wants an inheritance in this kingdom. Peter has been singled out as the one who will lead. But then immediately after he's called Satan by Christ. Because of his rebuke of Christ. And James and John fancy themselves as contenders with Peter. They are part of the three special disciples that were led up the mountain and given these special experiences. And they see Peter being rebuked and you... I've mentioned to you several times how we see this remarkable incident where their own mother comes to Jesus to try and secure the two prominent positions in the kingdom for her two sons. This is going on among them, and Jesus took a child and said, no, you should not be ambitious, competitive, in your pride, in your self-assertion, in your view of yourself as worthy. You should not view yourself that way. You should be more like a child a child is self-forgetful, they're not ambitious. A, a child isn't thinking about a great inheritance or position that they might give. A child is receptive, a child is teachable, a child knows how small they are, they know their weakness, and they know their frailty, and they want to be protected by others. Jesus says that's what a Christian is like. They're under Christ, they're under God. They, they've They've assessed themselves and they know their true dimensions. They see themselves as mean. 
and as um, base in the sight of God as creatures, but especially as creatures that have been born and who have lived in sin. Any right-minded Christian, if they get any true sight of God, will see that about themselves and the immensity and majesty of God and their own undeservedness to receive any good from God at all. When we really begin to see these things in those seasons of our lives, that's when we are really on fire for God. That's when we are burning with the purest flame as a Christian, when we see who God is and see our utter meanness and need in sight of him. They can't see it right now, but Jesus is trying to show them this. And he says, don't lay traps for each other. Don't sin against each other, Matthew 18, verse 6. Don't cause throw stumbling blocks in front of the little ones who are my children. And we saw that we can do that by false doctrine, that we can do it by teaching wrong things about God's law to each other, and having a bad general spiritual life, an unhealthy prayer life, an unhealthy uh, humility where pride is taking hold, and all of these things. And Jesus told us in the Sermon on the Mount, whoever breaks even the least of my commandments, who thinks that's no big deal, and then teaches others to do the same, they will be the least in the kingdom of heaven. But the true greatness in the kingdom of heaven comes from humility rooted in our own sin and Jesus Christ's grace, our own humility and our own obedience, even to the so-called arguable commandments. The so-called unimportant commandments. Of course, there is no such thing as an unimportant commandment. Jesus teaches them all this and he says, stop laying snares for each other and tripping one another up by this wrong teaching about doctrine, by a wrong view of my word, by being antinomian and breaking commandments and then just living a worldly, materialistic, unspiritual life. You're supposed to be a good influence on each other. If you don't do that, you're laying a snare for all those around you. And disputes like this that happen between the disciples will come up even among ourselves because of these root uh, problems. So the issue there is Peter, James, John, Judas, don't make other people sin. What he comes to here in verse 15 onwards in our text is, what do you do if someone sins against you? So make sure you're not causing other people around you to sin. But what is the Christian spirit like when someone sins against you? That's the, that's the issue that Jesus wants to teach about here. As he's giving this discourse on kingdom life, and he comes to church government, he says, you have to exist together. You're all one, and offenses will come. Things will happen in the body. What are you to do when these things happen? So the issue is discipleship and discipline. We usually think of discipline as something the church does. The church disciplines people in the church, when they commit adultery or they fall away from the faith, the church will discipline. But before we even get to something like that, we have to think of the word discipline in a positive sense. Um, The word disciple and the word discipline, they're the same word. So we think of discipleship as something 
exciting and making disciples, spreading discipleship, doing discipleship classes. We see that as positive. And then we see church discipline. We, we automatically think, well, that's negative. But they're actually the same thing. The, the word to disciple or, or to discipline, to disciple someone, it just means to instruct. And Jesus has disciples, and these are pupils he instructs. And they need instruction. Without that instruction, they go astray. And when they go astray, they need that information to be corrected. They need discipled or disciplined back. So it is, first of all, a positive thing that not only the church does officially, but all believers do it. Uh, You do it uh, as husbands and wives. Uh, You do it with your children. You do it as brothers and sisters in Christ. We're bound together in in this mesh. Together we're one. And this has to happen among us. If we are disciples, then we must live a disciplined life. We must live an instructed life. We are instructed by the word of God and we put it into practice. We are taught and instructed to be disciples who live a disciplined, God-honoring life. And remember that positive aspect of it, that Jesus says elsewhere, he talks about it in a, a positive, preventative sense that all issues aren't dealt with by the the very extreme end of the thing, which is church discipline, but most of it has to be dealt with here, which is that we teach one another, that we, we listen to the teaching of the church, that we study the Bible together. Most of these issues should be resolved there, that we find things out that we didn't previously know. And if we have a true heart towards Christ, once we discover these truths, we want them. And we say, I didn't know that. I'm sure that's happened to you many times where you discover something. You say, I didn't know this. I didn't know I was supposed to be doing this. Or I didn't know I was supposed to avoid that. I didn't know that I was not supposed to be carrying this out. That is discipleship. That is discipline. You have been instructed by Christ. And you put it into practice so that your life is one of discipleship. Where you are a pupil and Christ is the Lord, Master, and Teacher, and you live under him, and he instructs you in the way that you should go. So that is positive discipline that prevents serious sin. Most of it is unseen, and we don't think about it, but God is preventing us from sinning all the time by bringing these things to mind, by convicting us with the Spirit, and guiding us and helping us to live out faithfully this word. Most of the time, God is doing that and he's positively disciplining us as children and showing us this is where you're to go. This is when you cross the road, this is when you don't cross the road. And when there is a spiritual car coming, you don't cross the road when that's coming. We are children who are being instructed by Christ himself, the king and prophet and teacher of the church. But this passage really moves into what we would call corrective discipline. It's good to have teaching in the church that prevents these things from happening, but Christ himself says in this passage, offenses will come. Snares will come. Traps will come, and people will step into these traps. People will be ensnared by sin. That is just the way it is. That is the world we live in. 
That is the reality that God has ordained, that the church on the earth right now will always be fighting sin, and the root and the weed of sin, will it's always growing. You cut it down, it grows. You cut it down, it grows. It is there. And Jesus tells us its reality and tells us, this is what you are to do when it does grow, and it does happen. And he says, rather than it being prevented, it's happened. And it must be corrected. It, it must be instructed. It must be restored. And he says, if your brother sins against you, go and reprove him alone. And if he hears you, you have gained your brother. So what do we do then if we are trying not to lay snares for ourselves or, and for others? But what happens when we, when we look out and somebody sins and it affects us or it affects our church, what do we do? Christ tells us, go. Go and tell your brother. This obviously is an uncomfortable subject. We don't, we're not preaching on the Song of Solomon here. We're not, we're not preaching on the love of God here. Well, we are in a way. We'll see that this is an aspect of God's love. But we all know this is an uncomfortable subject. No one likes controversy. No one likes conflict. Really, even people who thrive on conflict, they don't actually like it. It makes them very unhappy. We don't like these things. And that's okay, that's right. Sin is an anomaly. Sin shouldn't be there, and we shouldn't be happy about sin or dealing with it in any way, in ourselves or in others. This is not, th- these things are not good, but they are real. So what do we do? We go and we do something. Notice that Jesus says that we are only to do this and to go and do something about it if someone sins and if they sin against us. We live in an age of quick offence. Many of you know the phrase the snowflake generation. That everyone's unique and everyone's opinions are valid and if anyone has a different opinion or does anything that impedes you in any way there is quick offence and the unpardonable sin has been done against you that the devil has just worked that in like leaven into western society we've lost the sight of God and we've become God and we are oversensitive in a sinful world about the slightest infraction the slightest thing that may be done against us and everyone is offended most of the time by something. But notice Jesus isn't speaking about that. He's speaking about actual sin. Which is different. It needs to be an actual sin. So let's say a couple of things about it. First, make sure it is a sin. If you're going to do something about this, if you want to be faithful to Jesus' teaching here, make sure it is a sin. If your brother or sister sins against you, go and tell them their fault. Not all perceived offences are sins. Jesus isn't speaking here about your perceived treatment. He isn't speaking here about a perceived offence. He isn't speaking here about any time you feel hurt. He isn't speaking here about any time your preferences weren't upheld. 
He isn't speaking here about any time that you feel your will has not been done. He isn't speaking here about any time someone disagrees with you and you don't like it. None of these are necessarily sinful. They could be, but they're not necessarily sinful. There's all kinds of things in the world today and that are pouring into the church that affect our view of our interpersonal relationships that Jesus is speaking about in this text. We very quickly can call something sinful because we feel uncomfortable, because we feel offended, because our feelings have been hurt, our will was not done, or there's something important that we prize and someone else has not thought that that was important to consider, and therefore they have sinned against us. There's all kinds of things that people today in the culture, journalists, authors, bloggers, in the world and in the church, you read some of the Christian blogs, Gospel Coalition, Together for the Gospel, Ligonier, whatever you read, even the standard of teaching today, when you read these things, there are so many subjective statements made all of the time that aren't thought through and that are not rooted in the Word of God about feelings and about perceived hurts. And the unpardonable sin is to make someone feel uncomfortable or to make them feel hurt in any way. That is not biblical. I'll say something about that in a second. What is the remedy to that? The remedy to that is what Isaiah says in his prophecy. To the law and to the testimony, he says. When they're all arguing in Israel about, they're calling evil good and good evil, and Isaiah says, to the law and to the testimony. How do we decide what is actually sinful? How do we decide these things? To the law and to the testimony. The Word of God, as our Westminster Confession of Faith teaches, that the Word of God is the only rule for faith in life and how we are to conduct ourselves and order our lives. It's the only rule. In other words, the commandments of God, the clearly explicit ones, and the practical commandments that Jesus gives and that Paul gives and that Peter gives, all bound together in that one God-breathed Word that is a, a closed a canon and revelation, and God has given it to us to tell us what is right and what is wrong, what is sinful and what is not. And we are to look to that word before we even think about approaching someone else and telling them that they've sinned against us. We look at the law of God. The law of God gives its ten commandments and all the things that flow from that command, those commandments. Four of them are about how we should treat God and the, the other six are about how we are to treat one another. And they are, um, they are foundational commandments that lots of other commandments by implication flow from. That we, uh, authority to one another, sexual uh, purity to one another, spiritual faithfulness to one another, respecting property and time and these things, not stealing from other people's resources, being truthful, but being truthful in love, not being covetous, not envying one another, all of these commandments. Respecting each other in the sense that whenever I speak to you about God, I revere his name. If I don't revere his name, that's the third commandment, if I take the name of the Lord in vain, if I make a joke about Christ, if I make jokes about the Bible, I am sinning against you. 
because I'm giving you the impression that that's okay and that we can lower the standard down here. If I have an attitude to his day that is wrong, then I am sinning against you because I'm teaching you, teaching you to lower that standard. And so on, you know how it works. If I idolize something in my life, idolize someone in my life, and I don't give Christ the first place, you will look at my life and you will say, well, he's doing that, that means it's okay if I do that too, and I am sinning against you. When we consider our actions and affections and our spiritual state and how we behave, we must bring it to these ten words, these ten beautiful, loving, pure, restorative commandments that tell us what a pure and godly image is. The very image of God in his grace, glory, love and purity. And if you just say you're in a situation like that and you're wondering and wrestling over, is this sinful in my life or in someone else's? Then go to these Ten Commandments and even pick up the catechism that is part of our church constitution and part of what we confess. And there is a section in the catechism on the Ten Commandments and they exegete the Ten Commandments and they give long descriptions that we confess as a church about what is sinful and what is not. So these are authoritative statements. So you might say, I never lie, but they give a list of about 20 different ways that you could lie without realizing it. You may say, I don't steal from anyone, but they open it up to show the depth of the commandment, just like Jesus did. The Pharisees said, we don't commit adultery. And Jesus opened that commandment to them and showed them that it was far deeper than they thought. And lo and behold, they were committing adultery. They said, we don't murder people, we honor life. But they were hateful and spiteful in their hearts in these things. So when Jesus says, brethren, if a brother or a sister sins against you, make sure that your offense or your hurt or your disagreement with it isn't founded upon the collective wisdom of the world today or your own feelings or your own pride or your own will. Look into the word of God and look at the catechism and just humbly go through it and say, am I right about this? What does God say about this? Has this person really done any of these things against me? Make sure it is a sin. Include in that what kind of sin it might be. There are sins of ignorance that God gives sacrifices in the Old Testament for. People sin sometimes without knowing they have sinned. And without being jocular, that is because they are sinners. Sinners sin without knowing they've sinned because they are sinful. And they don't know how to analyze their own sin. That's the whole point of this. He tells, go, he says, go and speak to your brother because he may not know. You may have to tell your brother or sister that they have sinned. So there are sins of ignorance. There are sins of infirmity, which are... Um, things that we just fall into 
without realizing and without planning them, just because we are weak and the flesh is weak and we are put under pressure in our life and we react to a certain situation. We may react sinfully, but we didn't plan to. That's sometimes called uh, by theologians a sin of infirmity. It's just due to your weakness. And that has to be included in how you view that in someone else. That they didn't plan to do this and that they, they, they didn't work all of this out and put it into action. They, they may have just reacted badly to a situation. They may be falling because they're weak at the moment. That they are weak and prayerless and not using the means of grace and they're in a weakened state and you have to be careful with someone in that situation because they are weakened and it may break them in the wrong way if it's not dealt with in the right way. And then there's the sins that we sang about in Psalm 19. Willful sins. Keep me from willful sin. Let it not reign within. Willful sin is when we know fine well that what we're about to say or do is sinful and we go ahead and do or say it anyway because we don't really care at the time about the consequences. It is willful. And that is obviously the worst kind of sin. To sin against your own conscience and against the word of God which you know and yet it doesn't restrain you. You sin anyway. All of these are kinds of sins that can happen. And Jesus knows they can happen. He sees it among these disciples at the time and he's gracious and merciful to them and they're competing against each other and they may Jesus may be teaching this actually because the disciples feel at the time that certain ones among them have wronged each other Peter certainly feels that, verse 21 Peter came to him and said Lord how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him seven times so a conversation has happened and a dispute has happened and Peter feels wronged and he's asking how many times am I meant to forgive these other guys for what they're saying and doing. How, how many? Seven times. So you know what's going on among the disciples and Jesus teaches this so that it can be dealt with because it's a reality. So make sure it is a sin. To the law and to the testimony, the commandments, our understanding of the commandments, and look at that under God and be sure that the thing is sinful. So many examples in God's word of zealous people who go with the accusation of sin when it actually is not a sin. You remember Aaron and Miriam challenged Moses and said that he was proud, that he took this position upon himself and they should be allowed to do the things that he's doing. And God gave Miriam leprosy for that wrongful accusation against Moses, that rebellion. Dathan and Abiru, these men that ruled thousands of people in the wilderness, each of the tribes had rulers, and some of the rulers showed up after they saw Aaron and Miriam's rebellion, and these rulers came and said to Moses, you have taken too much upon yourselves. The whole congregation is holy. And there should be no Moses, there should be no leader the whole congregation is sanctified by God and we want to prophesy too we want to offer incense too we're all one and how dare you put yourself above us now Moses did not put himself above them God placed Moses there Moses didn't want it Moses tried to get out of it but they, res they resented Moses and that kind of thing can happen there are so many examples in the word of God remember when David went to give supplies 
to his brothers on the battlefield, and his brothers looked at him, the youngest brother, the one who'd been anointed by Samuel, the one who looked after the sheep, and the brothers resented the fact that Samuel had done something for David, and they thought, our little brother is nothing. He isn't a warrior like us. Even Samuel thought that. Samuel looked at the older brothers and said, surely the Lord's anointed is here. But they were wrong. And they were out on the battlefield thinking that they were the true warriors of Israel, the ones that God would use. And David came to them and they said, here he comes, here comes David. And they said to him, what happened to the, the few sheep that you were looking after? What happened to them? Where are those little sheep that you're looking after? They made fun of them. And they said, we know the insolence of your heart. You have come up to see into the battle. Because they thought they were going to lose the battle. Do I need to say anything about Joseph and his brothers? Here he comes, the dreamer. The only holy one in the family. But all the other brothers said, here he comes. Arrogant, full of himself. He has these great dreams that he's going to lead us and lead our family and that the stars are going to bow down to him and that the sheaves are going to bow down to him. Here comes the dreamer. And let's throw him into a pit and let's see what, come of the, what will become of his dreams. They thought Joseph was sinning. Joseph was not sinning. And God honored Joseph. And in the end, it was these brothers that had sinned and they had to bow down before Joseph. And the lists go on and on. We have to make sure that what has been done against us is a sin. And to just finalize and drive that nail into the wood. There are people in the Gospels who accuse Jesus of sinning. This verse says, if he actually sins, go and speak to him about it. Not if you feel that you don't like what is going on, or if you feel slighted or feel hurt. The Pharisees and others did not like what Christ was doing. And they went to him to rebuke him. They carried out this verse. They went to their brother and they rebuked him. Peter thought Jesus was wrong and went and rebuked the Lord Jesus. So see how careful we have to be in going to someone. Because if the disciples and the Pharisees can think that Jesus is sinning, that should make us very careful about considering God's word about whether it's an actual sin. So let's be careful with that. This is about actual transgression and iniquity. It's not about whether we agree or not, or whether we feel good. There were many people that were around Christ that did not feel good about what Christ was doing and what he was saying. Did everyone leave the presence of Jesus happy? No. Many people left his presence livid and very unhappy with what he was saying and doing. And many of the disciples, remember the synagogue in Capernaum, they left. They just left because they didn't like what Jesus was saying. So if our, if the bar is sin equals discontentment, or sin equals I don't agree, or sin equals I'm not happy, 
then we are nowhere near where we should be as Christians. These are not the bars by which God assesses whether something is sinful or not. The bar is what God has said. And when God says something, not everyone will be happy about it or agree with it. And we have no right to go to someone and say, you have sinned against me because I don't agree with what you are doing. We should never begin the conversation like that. The conversation must always begin with, this is what the Bible says. Now, do you do that, friend? When you complain to someone or when you speak to your husband or your wife or you assess a situation and you say, I don't like that this person is doing this or I don't like what that person said to me, do you begin with, because it says this in Scripture, therefore, I don't agree with what is happening. Or, because it says this in Scripture, I feel I have been sinned against. Make sure that that's where it begins. Don't gauge it all by your feelings and then try to attach the Bible on at the end, or not at all. So, don't go unless it is based on the commandments of God. Make sure it is a sin. Also, make sure you go spiritually. Make sure you go spiritually. We read in, in Galatians 6, and let me just remind you exactly what Paul says about this very issue, when he tells us to go based on the teaching of Christ. If a man is overtaken in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. In the spirit of meekness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. If they're overtaken in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore that person in the spirit of meekness. You who are spiritual. Now he's writing to the Galatians, and when he says you who are spiritual, he's not saying all who profess Christ or all who are Christians in, in the Galatian church. He's saying to the Galatian church, those among you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness. In other words, if we're going to faithfully uh, obey what Christ teaches us here, in verse uh, 15-17 of Matthew, um, we have to make sure that we are doing it in a spiritual way and that we are spiritual. Now, what did Paul mean when he says those who are spiritual? He says, walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. The works of the flesh are evident. These are anger, malice, sexual immorality, unclean works. And he lists them all. But he says, not so you. The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace. The fruit of the spirit so he says, walk in the Spirit with the production of the fruits of the Spirit. And if you are doing that, you are spiritual. Now, of course, we know that every Christian, in an ultimate sense, is spiritual. They have the Holy Spirit, but not all Christians are the same. Christians fall away. We go through periods of disobedience, coldness, prayerlessness, hardness. We we move away and we're not walking in the spirit. And if we are in that condition, we are the last person that should approach someone else to try and correct them. Because we ourselves are not walking in the spirit. We are not walking in the love and grace of the spirit. We are not looking at the word of the spirit. 
and his gracious and pure holiness. We are not going in the spirit of love to restore the one who has trespassed. But you who are spiritual, restore such a one. So make sure not only that it is a sin that is bothering you, but make sure that you are going to go spiritually, walking in the spirit. That looks like a prayerful life. That looks like communion with God. A heart that is at that time filled with affection for the Lord Jesus Christ because you're looking at him and beholding him. You are filled with his, his glorious light. That means feasting on his word constantly and living in confession of your own sin regularly and on a daily basis and striving in thanksgiving to him to be obedient and joyful to his word and to be looking at the cross and humbled by your own unworthiness and what you deserve and with a knowledge of your daily need of cleansing yourself. I've listed all those things to you. I've just described a Christian who is alive and walking in the spirit. That is a healthy Christian. And that's the person. The person who has that morning confessed their own sins to God. The person who has offloaded those sins and acknowledged their own unworthiness is in a good position then. If their sister or brother has sinned against them, they are in a good position to speak in the right spirit to the one who has wronged them. Jesus tells us, in our call to worship, we read from the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts, forgive us our sins, and those who have sinned against, as we forgive those who have sinned against us. Only if you are walking in the Spirit are you able to do something spiritual like this. Now Paul says it in Galatians, our Lord makes it very clear in the Sermon on the Mount, and you know the passage. Um, in the Sermon on the Mount, our Lord gives this caveat to us. In Matthew 7, he tells us this, as we are thinking about doing this. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye? Not consider the plank in your own eye. How can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye and look at planks in your own eye? Hypocrite. First remove it from your own eye and then you will see clearly. He's just saying what Paul says there. And we obviously have to be careful with that text. That text is used so you never approach anyone because we always have something in our eye. We're sinners. But Jesus is saying there that this person is not walking in the spirit. They're not walking in obedience. They're not alive to Christ at the time. They're not flowing with the grace of God and in communion with God at the time. And that's a far bigger problem than the sin that is being committed against you. Believe me, it is. It doesn't matter what someone has done against you. If that is your condition, it is more urgent than the thing the other person did. And Jesus is saying, he gives this ridiculous picture of someone with a beam of wood sticking out of their face, going with, with tweezers to take something out of someone else's eye. And it's just a very vivid picture. And Jesus says, don't do that. Don't do that. Make sure you are okay first. It may be the case that the speck in the brother or sister's eye is such an irritant to you because the plank in your own eye at the time is pride, discontent, contentment, a critical spirit. If you're in that condition with such a plank in you, that, that is going to make you deal with this other situation terribly. 
So the Lord says, if someone really has fallen into a sin in their life or in their doctrine, and it is there, and it's clearly the word of God shows that this is a real thing, then you can prepare to go and do something about that. But you must make sure that it is you who are spiritual, walking in the spirit, spirit-led, that it is you are going to do something about that, and that you will make sure there is no plank in your own eye. Make sure of sin. Make sure you go spiritually. Thirdly, make sure it is private. Make sure that it's private. Go and tell him his fault between him and you. It says here, go and show him his fault in the NASB, in private. The words Jesus used were, go and tell the brethren, you and him, only. Mono. You know, the monotheistic religions or a monopoly is when only one company dominates the market. That word mono means only. And Jesus says, do this mono. Now, I, I feel like I need to keep giving caveats to all of these things because we can fall into error. Jesus here isn't speaking about all sins that ever happen. He's speaking about when something happens between you and another person. If someone sins publicly, if someone has an affair and it's known in the church and in the town, we are under no obligation to deal with that privately. The public sin must receive a public admonition and a public restoration and all these things. There are lots of things that are wider than this, that are more serious than this. Just say a a Christian um, is driving recklessly in their car and they run someone over and kill them. And then they're brought to court and they're charged and they're convicted of that crime. I'm not going to put this into practice. I'm not going to go to them in their cell and tell him his fault privately. You'll see how ridiculous that is. This isn't about those kinds of situations. This is our interpersonal dealings like Peter, James, and John. They're arguing here, and Jesus says, deal with that privately. There's an argument here between the disciples, and he's telling Peter, if you've got a problem with James, go and speak to James. Don't tell all the other disciples about it. Go and speak to James. You and him, or if it's a sister, you and her, Speak about it. Explain. Approach. And do this. And do it privately. Why? A respect for the name of the brother or sister. If this is a personal disagreement or a wrong that's been done in your relationship to them, respect for their name. Because not all of these things need to be known. Not everyone needs to know if someone has gossiped about you or not everyone needs to know if someone's spoken anger to you. Not everyone needs to know that. Unless it's out of control and it's destroying a church or something like that. But if it's between you and another person, you don't go and speak to eight people and say, can you believe what this person said to me? And, I, and then go and see the person. That, that's to disobey Christ here. 
the, the respect for the name of someone because they are a Christian and, and uh, the Christian falls. The, and for one fall, the, the Christian's entire profession should not be destroyed. So there's a respect for their name and there's Christ's desire to contain a situation. That it, it doesn't need to explode out and take out a thousand people when it could be dealt with in a controlled manner. That isn't covering it up. I mean, if it's serious, if someone comes to you and says, I, I've been having an affair with someone else's wife and no one knows. My response to that isn't, let's deal with this privately. The first thing I would do is tell the session that that is a serious situation and there should be no cover-up of that. That needs to be brought out into the open and dealt with. But this is an interpersonal, person-to-person, daily staying kind of thing, where we sin and we speak against one another or we, in, uh, we trip each other up, these kind of things. We should want to contain the situation in a righteous way. Jesus did that. Uh, Peter, um, Peter denied Christ remarkably with oaths and curses, and all of us are capable of that. He was so under pressure that he actually swore and spoke disgusting language to get the danger away. He denied that he knew the Lord, and we're told in the New Testament that Jesus, after his resurrection, met with Peter privately, and he restored him. The other disciples weren't there. He appeared, as Paul tells us, then he appeared to Simon. And he dealt with Peter alone. Jesus obeyed his own command. He dealt with Peter alone. And because his sin had been public in the courtyard, and the other disciples knew about it, once he dealt with it, he then restored Peter to his ministry at the Sea of Galilee in front of the other disciples. You see the wisdom of Christ. This thing happens in public. It's a sin of infirmity. Peter's caught off guard. It's an awful thing he's done. Jesus meets with him in private. He resets the bone. He puts the the cast on the arm spiritually. He heals Peter. And then he brings him out to the Sea of Galilee. And with the other disciples, he tells Peter, feed my sheep, preach for me, build my kingdom. Jesus obeys his own command. We should obey it too. So make sure it is a sin. Make sure you're prepared and spiritual, prayerful, walking in the Spirit before you ever attempt something like this. It should never be done if you haven't prayed about it. How many times have you gone to someone and out it comes and there was no prayer beforehand, no real prayer? And make sure if it's an issue like this that it's private and the name is respected and the good of everyone concerned is respected, that it doesn't need to explode out. Make sure of these three things. Let me say a couple of things as we bring this to a close. And make sure that if you're the one, if it's myself or yourself, and we're the one that has sinned against someone, and they come to us in this way, Make sure you receive it from them. We're going to close the the service by singing Psalm 141, and that psalm says this. Let the righteous smite me. 
it is a kindness. It will be as oil on my head. Let me not refuse it. Jesus says, if he hears you, you have gained your brother. And we have to hear. Now, people can be wrong. They can come to you and say, this happened, and you can say, that didn't happen. They can say, you said this, and you can say, I didn't say that. If you know you haven't said it, then you're allowed to say that. But if you have done it, and you have said it, then you need to receive the loving approach of someone who loves you as a brother or sister. Let the righteous, the spiritual one, let him smite me, and it is a kindness to me, and it's like oil upon my head. Let me not refuse it. We have to receive these things. And Jesus says, if he hears, you you have gained them. He might not receive it. She might not receive it. If he will not hear, take with you one or two more. Just increase it. Bring some other reasonable people with you. Maybe, Maybe they'll listen to them. Make sure it's a sin. Make sure you go spiritually. Make sure it's private. And make sure you receive it. I have a couple of important things to say as we close. Three things very quickly. They're just statements really. This is good. This is good. It comes from the loving heart of our King and Shepherd and it is good. Sin is serious, even when it begins small, a little leaven can leaven the whole lump. It is good to do this in the ways that we've said, if it's done biblically and in the right way. This is good. It's good for the church. It's good for the people involved. It's good for the person. Sin unchecked and undealt with will grow. It will become other sins. It will spread. It lowers the witness of the church. When the church is gossiping, lying, desecrating the Lord's day, when men in the church are looking at women and the way they're dressed, whatever it might be, when people see that, or other Christians see it, within a generation, the level of church living goes like that. And then the church becomes impotent and useless, and it's not salt that, that works in the society at all, and it will have no effect. This is good. This is Christ's command. And he says the church is to be without spot and blemish. And that he will purify her with the water of the word. This is a good thing. To go in like a doctor and to see the thing when it begins and to get rid of it before it spreads. Sin is contagious. It is destructive. And it kills our spiritual lives. This is good. This is loving. We don't think it is. We think to criticize is not to love. To confront is not to love. To show any strength is not to love. But to be agreeable, loose, harmless, that's love. According to the world and according to much of the church. That is love. And that is the devil's definition of love. That is not love. If that is love, then Jesus is not love. I said it before. People were with Christ all the time. They listened to him. 
and they didn't feel happy about it, make sure our definition of love is, is not in opposite to Jesus Christ. This is loving. The Old Testament says, do not hate your brother in your heart. You must rebuke him and not bear sin because of him. Love doesn't keep its mouth shut. Love doesn't agree with everything. Love doesn't say peace, peace, when there is no peace. Love will not hate the brother, but value the brother and sister's soul so greatly that it is seen scripturally that this must be done, it must be dealt with. It is for the good and the holiness of the church and the good and the holiness of the brother and sister. This is good, this is loving, this is restoring. This is the last thing I'll say. This is restoring. You have gained your brother or sister. This has as its end view winning them back. This has bringing them from where they've slipped from the path to set them on the path. It is to restore them. Paul says it. Restore such a one in the spirit of meekness. This is restorative. It's good to do for the holiness of the church. It's the loving thing to do. And it's the restoring thing to do. That when someone slips down a sinful path and begins to walk down it, that we warn and grab and pull back that person from the danger of sin. James says that. He who warns and turns a sinner from the error of his way saves his soul from death. Make sure it's sinful. Make sure you go spiritually. Make sure it's private. Make sure you receive it. This is good. This is loving. This is restoring. We'll see uh, next week that Christ goes on to explain how the church as a church government has to deal with uh, these kinds of things. May the Lord give us all the grace to receive his word uh, this morning. Now let's remain seated and we'll call on God's name in prayer. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we praise you for your word and we ask that you would give us the grace to love it and to put it into practice. And the Lord told us that these contentions and offences will come and we know how unpleasant they are. We know the difficulties involved. Help us all to walk in the Spirit and to grow above what our culture tells us. Help us to grow in the might and power of the Holy Spirit and to be men and women of the Word, to be men and women of prayer, men and women who love the Church of Christ and that for your honour and glory that we would carry this out as you have commanded that we would value the church's purity in its doctrine and in its moral conduct, that we would value it so highly that we wouldn't allow blemishes and weeds and leaven to spread among the bride. Help us to live in purity and holiness and help us to grow in love, uh, which must exist and burn within that holiness. Help us to be like our God, who is holy 
and who is simultaneously loving. O Lord, let us not spare the rod. He who hates his son spares the rod. Help us then, like David, to be willing to receive these things. And humble us all under your mighty hand. Forgive us our sins and our trespasses. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.